Does anybody need sermon notes? Hi, Everett. Oh, sure. It's too loud. Sure. Everybody. Everybody, everybody. Well, thank you so much for coming, everybody. My favorite holiday of the year. Guess what it is. Guess what it is. It's Reformation Day. Here's the thing. We celebrate all kinds of days. We really do. And we have the freedom to do that in Christ because we're not bound by dead religion. Now, one of the most common criticisms of Presbyterianism, in case you haven't heard this, is that we're the frozen chosen. It's that it's dead orthodoxy. The first thing you want to say about that is this. There's no such thing as dead orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is alive and well. But there have been movements in the church through time. And one of them comes in when the structure of the church starts to be inhibitory toward the gospel. And that's happened in many different denominations through time. There have been many different revivals, if you will. In the American experience, we had the first and second great awakening when the gospel came back to its full flush and vigor after a time of repression and darkness. That time they called the Dark Ages. Uh, it might have been the Dark Ages, but not for theology. It was doing pretty good. As we go through history, there have been moments that have been very important to the gospel. And one of those is the Reformation. Here's the thing. It might be very easy to think in this, aren't we really glorifying men and looking to men in this? No, we're talking about scripture. This is a real sermon and not a lecture. We are talking about scripture. But there are important people in the Bible that we talk about. There are actually, believe it or not, important people after the Bible the Christian faith did not stop 2,000 years ago, right? It has come on through history, through ups and downs and things going backward and forward. And we have the great opportunity to come together and actually dwell in the midst of history. Did you know that our time right now, hundreds of years from now, possibly thousands of years from now, people will look back on our time. And they will say, look what they did. Look what they believed. The same way we study history, they'll study us. It'll be like we're in a museum, right? But we will be singing in the choir of heaven at that time. But what we do at this time matters. And what they did in the previous generations matters. And how we got to hear from there, it all matters. This is the 10th sermon in this series. And we've gone over important ideas, important doctrines, important sections of the Bible, and important people and historical events. And all of them are important to us understanding who and what we are right now. In all the times that I've been speaking on uh, university campuses and things for really for decades, the most important crisis that I ever run into with young people is a lack of identity. They actually go into the school to get educated, and while they're there, they get de-educated and convinced that they don't really have an identity. They're not a specific thing. They're convinced that their identity is false, that their religion is false, that all of these things are false, and so they have this crisis within themselves of who or what am I, when really, we came from somewhere. We have a background. We have a lineage. We have a genealogy that's going through history, and it is important. That first song that we sang this morning, I knew it was going to be a little bit of a long shot because 
It's hard. It was so hard for me to sing it. I was up with Lindsay last night going over it again and again because I didn't want to get up in front of you guys and just blow it because it's hard, right? When I was a kid, songs were easy. I want to talk about that for a minute. There is a concept within Christian theology called high culture and common culture. High culture and common culture. There is. The song Amazing Grace is the most popular hymn ever written, right? Is it high culture or common culture? Common. You can sit around and sing it. You can sing it by a campfire. You can play it on a guitar. You can also play it on a pipe organ. But it's at the end of the day, it's three chords. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It's not high culture. It's common. And so everyone has access to it, right? Now, the Reformation produced two cultures. One, kind of what we just heard, a lot of that music was revised by Bach. And Bach wrote all of his great works as an employee of the Lutheran church. Because we talk about Luther so much today, I don't want you to get the idea that I think he's a spotless man or that he's perfect. I'm not even leaning Lutheran. But I love Luther because I can look back through history and I can see the great men of the faith and know they had their flaws and I'm kind of okay with it. I got mine too, right? I'd imagine you have a few of your own. No? Yes? Right? When I look back through the Bible and I look at Abraham and I look at David and I look at these men, they had their flaws too. And the Bible doesn't hide them. We, we, we chew on the grapes and we spit out the seeds, right? We take the good we can get and we pass by the old and every man is flawed in thought, word, and deed, right? So I can look back at that time and look and say, here was a guy who was actually willing to stand before princes and popes in the world and say the Bible or nothing. The Bible or nothing. And we're revulsed by him a little bit because he went against the status quo. He dared to disagree with the church. He dared to disagree with the state. They were almost certainly going to kill him. I still don't understand how he survived. But at the same time, it was for the Bible or nothing. I'll tell a little of the story. But here's the most important thing. We've been going over many different doctrines. Last week, we went over sanctification, which is the most unpopular, but not in this church. Sanctification is the idea that we are actually being made holy and we are getting morally better through time. Really, by the time you get to a certain age and by the time you've been a Christian a long time, you should actually be measurably morally better than you were when you were younger. Some of you are looking at me funny. We're like, really? <laughs> yes, it should be measurable. You were this way when you were young, and as you grew and as you matured, not only personally but spiritually, you got stronger and you got clearer minded. And the decisions that you would make now are not the same as the decisions you would make then. Why do we have so much grace for younger people that are struggling with things and that are confused about things, because we've been them, right? I certainly was. And yet through time, we grew. We grew. That's sanctification. So we're not afraid to say, you should follow the moral law of God. You should follow the Ten Commandments. You should follow the two great laws of love, love God and love your neighbor. But the reason that we can say that is because it's not cheap moralism. You're not coming in here and hearing a great football story and having me ramp you up so that you will perform the law better. That's not what we're doing. We are calling you to believe in Christ so that the expression of your salvation 
And the grace that you've received will be to love God and love your neighbor, not from fear of his punishment, but from love for his glory, right? So, you know, it was John MacArthur that said this uh, most clearly, but you can preach the law as hard as you want, as long as you preach the gospel with clarity, right? Isn't that the way it is? Otherwise, people will always get the idea that their legal obedience is contributing to their salvation. Or they'll be crushed under the weight of the law because they simply can't perform it. Or they'll become legalistic and think that they're actually performing the law. They'll change the laws from perfectly love God and perfectly love your neighbor to don't go to movies and don't chew tobacco. Right? We'll just make up a law that we can pretty much do. And, you know, as long as I'm doing it and I'm doing better than you, I'm okay with God. Right? A lie. It's a lie. None of us are okay with God except for through Christ. Right? So here, this issue of faith, Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing to his most difficult audience, the educated Jews in Rome. These were the people that really knew their stuff. And the Apostle Paul, like he always does, he does not write one chapter to us and say, I, I just hope you get this. He wants to make a point, right? So he writes 16 chapters of heavy argument and theology. This is why, you know, when you start getting into a, a, a study of Romans, it can be difficult because he's writing hard. He's writing hard. He's after it. And he starts out by saying that salvation is from faith to faith. And he knows that's going to be confusing to us because we always think that salvation is you repent and make your life right. And as soon as you're doing enough good works, I'll consider whether or not I like you very much. That's our perspective on God. The question we should be asking is, did, Jesus, did God like Jesus enough? Was God a fan of Jesus was God a fan of his only son? Did he love him completely? Did he perfectly keep the law in thought, word, and deed? He did. He not only loved God perfectly, he loved us perfectly, and we are not as lovable as we think we are. True? But if he is our representative and we have faith in him, we're okay. We're okay. I never have to doubt God's love for me regardless of my performance regardless of my performance. So then, the thing about faith. What is faith? It's a good question, right? What is faith? There's a very common thing, especially in the new perspective on Paul, which is a heresy that's come into the church of late. It's even come into Reformed and Presbyterian churches that says that faith is actually faithfulness. That faith is faithfulness. Faith is the legal obedience. Faith is your moral behavior. And the reason that that's particularly insidious is because it's a denial of everything that happened in the Reformation where we were freed from the chains and bondage of fear of God to be able to love him fully and from the heart. But what the great theologians have said is, down at number four, faith is knowledge, assent, and trust. If you're going to define faith, Faith is understanding. It is actually has a noetic element. See, one of the reasons that people want to say that faith is love 
is so they don't have to believe in Christ for their salvation. They can believe in themselves. It's very common to hear this as a presentation of the gospel. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Let me ask you, is that the gospel? Or is that the law? I mean, through here, the Apostle Paul is pounding on the pulpit saying you're not saved by the law. You're saved by grace. You're saved through faith. And then we have people that come in and they say, really, faith is just the law. You're really saved by the law, just a different law or another law. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. But without faith is it impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. And that he is the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So faith is believing God, and no one can please God apart from faith. I know that has a lot of theological baggage. We won't get into all of it today, but without believing God, God cannot be pleased with us. See, in this way, God has made an avenue, a doorway, a portal to him through Christ, through faith in Christ, so that we can be received by him. But apart from faith, no one pleases God. So we go on and we remember that verse that, you know, well, the demons believe and shudder. Is faith then mere belief? Well, the Bible's testimony is the mere fact of recognizing that Christ rose from the dead and that he's the son of God is not actually faith. That's just knowledge. You can't have faith without knowledge. You have to have faith in something if you have faith, but it is not sufficient in and of itself for salvation. Don't you think Satan knows a little something about the Bible? It is not just knowing true things. It's also trust in those things, that they are for you. He can't just be known to be a savior. He has to be known to be your savior. He can't just be the savior of those who've subjected themselves. You have to subject yourself to him. One of the most important conversations that we tend to have with young people is this. I know that you know about God. I know you've heard about God. I know you've read about people that have liked God a lot in the Bible and things. But what we need to know is, have you already come to the place where you have vested the course of your entire life in the worship of Christ that you will live for him from now on and forever? Have you come to the place where you have been asked that question, who do you serve? How will you identify yourself? How are you defined? By the world, by your friends, by your group, by your nation, by your community, or by Christ? This day, choose whom you will serve. If the world and the devil and your flesh, then serve them, right? But if Christ, if God, then serve him. Because those two courses of life are irreconcilable. And one thing that frustrates God more than just an outright heathen Somebody that sits on the fence wavering between two decisions. Calls them the lukewarm. You've got to come to one or the other. You can't just keep riding the fence. You've got to be all in for God or you've got to be all in for the world. There is no middle way in that. And the way of that is faith. 
there's a decision that has to be made. There's a power in that. There's a power to setting your life in such a way as that you know that you know that Christ is your Christ and you're going to follow him all your life, come hell or high water, come pain or suffering, no matter what happens, you're going to follow God for the rest of your life. And now is the time of decision. Set a course. Make a decision. Make a play. Know who you are. So also there's the danger of faith in something else. This is another danger. Well, I believe that I'm saved by faith, but I've got these other things. My good works, my church membership, the community that I'm a, that I'm a part of, all of these things are dangers to your well-being. Now, here's the thing. God says we're supposed to be a member of a local church. We're supposed to contribute our gifts there and receive things back, but you are never to measure your salvation by the mere fact that you're a member of the right church. That is dangerous. Do you really think you're that smart that you figured out enough theology that you know exactly the perfect church? I mean, Grace View is a perfect church, but I mean the other ones. <laughs> Come on now. You go, into McDon- you go into McDonald's, it doesn't make you a hamburger. Go in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. You go into church, it doesn't make you a Christian. Vest yourself in Christ. Lean upon him solely and irreconcilably as your only salvation. So we've talked about a few of these guys. We're going to go down the list of the people that we've talked to over the last 10 weeks. First, Augustine. One of the important things about Augustine is that he said, ultimately, we're saved by grace and not by our own works or goodness. And he said that in like 360 AD. This is not, this is not new information. He also made the distinction in the sacraments between the sign and the thing signified. The sign is only bread. We're not going to change it into Jesus for you today. We just don't have the power to do that but it represents a spiritual reality. That was an important issue to the Reformation. Next, Thomas Aquinas, my favorite, not favorite. Of all of the influential guys in church history that I don't like, he's the one I don't like the best. (laughs) But you have to talk about him because he's the second most influential Christian in history. We actually talked about that if you're a Protestant, you're basically... Influenced by Augustine. If you're Roman Catholic, you're basically influenced by Thomas Aquinas. And they were both talking about the Bible. John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, we talked about how he came along in England a full hundred years, 200 years, before Martin Luther, and he translated the Bible into English. How many of you have heard of Wycliffe Bible translators? The reason it's named after him is because he showed up and translated the New Testament into English, and guess what happened? People read it, and England's been nothing but trouble ever since. (laughs) But he's the one that said, you know, if we're going to get Christians, we've got to have them read the Bible. And he was condemned by the church over and over again for the simple act of translating the Bible into English and then distributing it among the people. Martin Luther, the firebrand of the Reformation, one of the reasons that he's important is because all of those people before him, like John Huss, were trying to do something, and Luther actually did it. He actually stood up and said, no, we're, we're justified by grace alone through faith alone, apart from our good works. The church is lying to us. The church is lying to us, and they're getting rich off it. You have to remember that at the time, one of the most important things that was happening is that the church was selling indulgences which basically meant this. You could go to the church and you could pay them money and they would write you a piece of paper. And the piece of paper said you would get out of purgatory with less time and suffering and fire, right? And so you could buy your grandma's way out of hell, basically. 
It even got to the place where you could actually, if you had enough money, you could buy forgiveness for a sin before you had committed it. And they had this slogan that they would do all over the place. When the coin into the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. They had made up an entire system, a cash cow, and they were getting rich. You know, I love the great cathedrals of Europe. I've visited a lot of them. When I see them, they're super impressive. But give me one church like this rather than a thousand of those built on the backs of the people that were starving, giving their money to the church. The church is not for anyone's glory, and it takes a lot of manipulation to build churches like that, sometimes over centuries, withdrawing the money from the people and building up the power and glory of the worldly church. We should always remember that. Okay? So Martin Luther, he's a monk. I've told you this story before, but not everybody has heard it, and it is Reformation Day, so hey, we're going to hear it again. And uh, Martin Luther... He's, he's in law school. He's just finishing law school, right? He's got two weeks left of law school. And he's out in a great storm and lightning striking all around him. Lightning actually strikes him. And he cries out to God and he says, God, if you spare me, I will renounce my worldly ways and I will dedicate myself to the ministry. I will become a monk. And apparently God spared him. So he left law practice and he went and became a monk. Now, in those days, becoming a monk was a very weird kind of thing. It wasn't anything that we have ever found in the Bible, but it was something they did. They would close themselves off from the world, and they would shave their heads in a kind of a funny way. And they would give up all of their worldly entanglements, and they would dedicate themselves to God and the study of Scripture. And so he went to seminary for years, and he never read the Bible once. He read Aristotle. He read Plato. He read the church fathers, the ones they wanted to show him. But he had never read the Bible. But this guy was smart. It deeply disturbs me when people talk about, you know, Martin Luther wasn't an intellectual genius. He was just a big personality. They haven't read him. They haven't spent time with him. He was a genius. And so he went in and he snuck into the libraries and he pulled out the Greek text of the New Testament. And the first thing that he read was that passage of Romans that we read earlier. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He had thought that he could never be made right with God. And so he reads this. And he's transformed in his heart and soul. He wants to understand. He goes to his confessor and he starts to confess his sins for eight hours a day. All the other priests hated him. Because he'd show up and he'd confess and confess. And even after he left, he would think of one more sin. And he wanted salvation. But they couldn't give it to him. And he starts to read the text. And he reads Romans. And then he reads Galatians. And he finds out the church has been suppressing the truth and keeping him from God all this time. So he starts to write about these things. Eventually, he gets in a lot of trouble because he says, well, you know what he did, right? On October 31st, 1517, he goes to the church door in Wittenberg, and it was a big door. And this was, kind of, this was Facebook at that time, where they could post things. They actually called it posting. And he took 95 things that he thought were wrong with the Roman Catholic Church and that the Pope would never agree with, right? Like, they couldn't forgive sins. If the Pope could forgive sins, he would just forgive all our sins, right? So obviously he can't. And he takes it and it's, he nails it on the church door in Wittenberg. But there was this other little invention that had happened around that time. Do you remember Gutenberg? The printing press had been invented. 
So all the guys take this down and they start writing it up and they start printing it. And his 95 theses sweep through the church saying things like, we're justified by grace alone, not by our good works. If we just read the Bible, everybody would become Christians, right? So we need to stop leaning so much on the church and start leaning a little on Christ. And it swept through the land of Germany. And people started to see that the scriptures were inhibitory toward the well-being of the church, which might sound strange. Do they stop us? Do they guard us? Do they attack us? What do they do? So eventually they take him, and they take him to a trial. They take him to a disputation, a trial, where he has to stand before the Holy Roman Emperor, which was not a small thing. You have to remember that the empire was big. And the Holy Roman Emperor is there, and the princes are there, and all the cardinals are there. And he has a trial. And he comes forward, and he's going to try to tell them the gospel. And they say, we will not accept any word from you except for one. There's only one word you're allowed to say. Now, Martin Luther was not a dummy. He understood that going against the church was largely aimed toward becoming a pile of ashes out in the yard, right? He knew what was going to happen next. And what was the one word they allowed him to say? Recanto, revoco. You revoke or you suffer the consequences. And he said that great thing that the first time I read it, I laughed out loud. I couldn't believe it was so awesome. Do you remember what he said? On trial, they're all there. Can I have a day to think about it? It's left out of all the history books. I don't understand why. You know, if you, come on, you guys are looking at me like, well, pfft. Yeah, because you would have said, you know, I'll stand and here I... No, you might have wanted a day to think about it too because you're about to die. So they take him and they put him in a cell. And this is what's called an apocryphal story that's written by his followers that he didn't write himself. That means it's one step away from the primary source, but it's still history. And while he was in there locked in a cell, the devil came. And the devil manifested himself to him and tried to get him to recant. And the devil comes in. And he can't convince him, so he starts to pull out of his backpack scrolls, and he rolls them out across the floor. And Martin Luther looks at what they are, and it's a list that the devil's been keeping of every one of his sins. Every one of the sins of his heart, every one of the sins of his mind. Every time he sinned, the devil was keeping account. And while it's rolled out there, he gets down on his hands and knees, and he starts to read them, and he's struck by the fact that they're all true. And he's weeping. And the devil pulls out another scroll and rolls it out and another and then another with all of the sins that he never knew he did, that he's never repented of, especially his insidious sins toward the people that loved him and cared about him. All of the times that he bit them with a sharp word, all the times he jabbed them like a fork in their heart because he was quick with his tongue. Martin Luther's broken by the fact that he recognizes that these are his, and he crawls across the floor, and he grabs the inkwell and the quill. And as he's crawling back, the devil says to him, Martin Luther, what are you doing there? I know you're always up to no good. And as he crawls over there, he starts to scribble at the bottom of each scroll, and here's what he says. All of these sins are paid for in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and I am his and not yours, and I was bought at the cost of another, and on the last day, he and not you will be my judge. And the next day he goes out and he stands before the people and the Holy Roman Emperor is there and the cardinals of the church 
And they ask him, and he says this, unless you can convince me from scripture, or at least from sound reason, that I'm wrong, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot, I shall not recant, so help me God. Here I stand, I can do no other. And Germany exploded. Finally, there was somebody that was willing to stand there with scripture and say, scripture alone. Show me I'm wrong. I'm willing to be corrected. But it has to be scripture, not just some guy, right? No matter how nice his hat. It is a cool hat. And so it went forward from there through the world that the people started to read the scriptures for themselves. And I know you're used to reading the scriptures. I know this isn't new information to you. But let it not be lost upon us how wonderful a thing this is. And that it is not promised. And it is not guaranteed. And it is rare. How many bookstores do you think you can go into in Saudi Arabia and buy a nice new NIV study Bible? It's not a promise to you. It's a gift to you. It has come down to us through history. I want to be careful not to Americanize the gospel because it is more than us. But this country would not exist with the freedoms that it has in the way that it does if Martin Luther hadn't made a speech in Germany in 1517. It just would not. We'd probably all be slaves or serfs or some kind of property of another person. But this gospel going forth changed politics. It changed the way we think about individuals. It changed marriage. You know, it was pretty common in those days for a person to think of his wife as just a little more than cattle, right? You get one, you know, she has your babies, that kind of thing. This idea that we have of the reciprocal relationship and the good of a man and a woman bound together in marriage that are both created in the image and likeness of God, this great idea of Christian marriage <coughs> that draws millions of non-Christians to Christian marriage conferences every year, it doesn't come cheap and it doesn't come free. You have to have a philosophy that can sustain that kind of thing. Also, things like our worship, as we talked about earlier, that we are the performers to an audience of one, right? The reason we all sing, and I know especially for the young people, sometimes it's hard to get into it, and you're all, da, 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 da. but here's the thing, as you grow into it, that your singing to God will become important to you. I've told you guys before, I didn't really, I, I grew up into the hymns, but I didn't grow up with the hymns. I still remember I was about 13 years old the first time I heard my first real hymn, and it was holy, 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 and I could not believe how bad it was. I was like, is this even music? Holy, holy, I had heard the Beatles, man. I had a Led Zeppelin record. I knew music. But I heard it again, and I heard it again, and I still remember. One of the reasons I want to remember that is because I want to remember how offensive the hymns are to the average person that walks into this church that has never heard them before. Now, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I want you to recognize that word offensive. It is culturally offensive. It's not part of their history. It's not part of their background. They didn't grow up with it. And these songs are 400 years old, and they don't sound like anything on the radio. 
But after I had heard it a few times, all of a sudden I got it. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. What's the rest of the words? Early in the morning, my song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty. God in three persons, blessed trinity. Now, here's the thing. One of the criticisms of contemporary worship is they just can't sustain the theological heft of the worship of God. And that criticism is largely true, right? But it's sometimes false. That's why we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't say that arbitrarily anything written after 1920 is not good Christian music. What happened in 1920? Nothing, right? What we say is that we are going to decide as a people that whatever we sing to God should be glorifying to God, and we should be careful to measure what songs are worthy of singing in Christian worship, right? If those songs, like that song this morning, the music was written about 1100 AD. We sang a 900-year-old song today, right? It's got legs. What can I say? The choir today sang a mighty fortress. It's 500 years old. It's as good as the day it was written. The reason we still sing it is because it's great. The reason we still listen to Bach is because he was probably the best songwriter that ever lived. Will there come another one someday that will write great songs for the church? Maybe there will. But whatever is done, let it be done decently and in order and unto Christ, right? We don't need unnecessary cultural bifurcations. What we need is to maintain the purity of the worship of God. That happened during the Reformation because they wrote all those songs at that time because they had nothing to sing. Everybody used to make fun of Calvin's church in Geneva, right? Because they called it Genevan Jigs. Because they would sit there and they would sing the psalms and the whole congregation would sing and they'd be like, oh, they're all singing, it's terrible. Can you believe that? They were mocked because they all sang the worship together. And that also swept across the globe so that now we take it for granted that's just the way it's supposed to be done. Now in this, I want to read this passage in Romans chapter 5. Here is really a lot of the scholars and theologians say this is where you get to the meat of the gospel even in the book of Romans. Where he really starts to hammer down what his point has been for the last four chapters and what his point's going to be for the next chapters. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice even in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then he explains what he's just said. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. And perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows us his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, 
Now we are reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I want you to notice the past tense on that. We have already received the reconciliation. And it has been by faith in Christ and not by any goodness in us. And one of the reasons this is important is because it causes a psychological shift in the mind of the person who has come to Christ. That we cease to be a certain way and we become a different way. If you know that you have only been saved by grace, it will make you a graceful person. If you know that you've only been forgiven, it will make you a forgiving person. If you know that you've been loved when you haven't loved anyone, it will make you a loving person. And that is the effect that we expect to see in all of God's children. Amen? Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you so much for the blessings that you've given us, for the greatness of your gospel that you have preserved through history. We pray, Lord God, that you would just instill in us this knowledge of our salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so that it sets us free from the bondage of conscience and the world, Lord God, and just gives us the opportunity to live a life of gratitude. And we thank you for all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Sorry, Emily, what's the hymn again? Number 142. We will sing the first two verses of hymn 142. I know it doesn't say 142, but it's lying.
Please be seated. The Lord's Supper is one of two sacraments. That means holy sign and seal. The first is infant baptism, which we administer to children, yes, before they believe, because it's a picture of salvation and grace. The Lord's Supper is for adults. It's for those who have made profession of faith. Parents, I trust that as we partake that you will explain to your children the wonder and glory of this mystery and what is going on. When children have made a profession of faith and are received by the session, then they may receive the sacrament. Hear now the words of the institution as they're recorded from the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then a word of warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Lord our God and Father, we pray that you would set this bread apart to a holy use in Jesus' name. Please retain the elements until everyone has been served.
was after he broke bread and took the cup and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink from it. You have been fed by the Lord through his body and through his precious blood. You are forgiven your sins. This is also a time of blessing, but it's a Benevolent offering. 
to assist those who are in need. Please rise as we sing that last verse of O Sacred Head, which is number 142 in your blue hymnal. What language shall I borrow to people of God and receive God's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.